the First Christian Church of Tiefland brings you the good news. And now, Tom Show. Third part of our four-part series. On which way will you run? I'd like to preach today on a prize every time. I'd like to read this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, <coughs> verses 19 through 27. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews to those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law. Not having, excuse me, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the people, or excuse me, for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to the others, I myself should become disqualified. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our holy God and Father above, as I read those words, they should hold meaning from all of us. What it means to run the race of our faith. And what we're told to run the race in such a way that we receive the prize. One thing that teaches me, Lord, is that in all things as I run, I will not quit. I will not quit on you, Father. And that's what that teaches me. It also teaches me, Lord, that as I run, I run with honor. I'm not looking to cheat in any way. And also, Lord, that I run in such a way as I preach, that I, not, that I follow the things that the Word of God teaches me, so that I might not be disqualified. So I pray, Lord, that we'll learn much today from this sermon on how our Christian walk should be. For this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, many Christians don't understand the prize they should be running for. So I should probably ask you, do you? Do you understand the prize? Hall of Famer Bob Feller was a major league pitcher for the Cleveland Indians back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. He was signed up in 1935 when he was only 16 years old. And in his first start in 1936, he struck out 15 St. Louis batters. In 1938, he became the first pitcher to strike out every batter in one game. If you didn't know, that's 27. When Bob Feller was nine years old, his teacher asked him to write an essay about an oak tree. 
Here are the ideas that he put in his theme. He said, an oak tree can be cut down and sawed into boards. You can make baseball bats out of them. You can also make home plates out of the boards. You can make bleachers out of the boards so people can watch baseball games. Now, can anybody guess what this young man was focused on? Baseball. And from his youth on, Bob Feller's goal was to play baseball. Paul wrote in Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And what Bob Feller wrote as a child was, For me, to live is baseball. And that was his goal in life. So that got me thinking. What is our goal as Christians? Why are we here? Why do we go through what we do? What are we aiming to accomplish? Or, more personally, what's your goal? For some people, the goal of being in church is to have someone meet their own personal needs. Is that why you're here? So me and someone else here can meet your personal needs? Isn't that how we start out? We are drawn to the church because something or someone met our needs. There was a program for, that ministered to our kids. There was counseling available for our marriage or some other difficulty we were facing. Or there was a revival or a Bible study that led us to Christ and we came to Christ because we wanted His love in our lives. So initially for most of us, for us to live was for God to meet our needs. And there was nothing wrong with that. Because unless you are highly unusual, you became a Christian because what Christ and or the church Bid for you. Now the problem arises when we fail to make the transition from that mindset to the one Paul declared in Philippians 1, 21. For me, to me, to live is Christ. And when a Christian remains in a what can God do for me mindset, they can be fairly difficult to be around. They're always frustrated with how the church isn't meeting their needs and their expectations. And you can tell who they are because they'll be the ones you hear complaining. Several years ago, there's a story in print by a preacher of a large church of over 5,000 members. And this is what he wrote. I was in the supermarket one day, and a lady came down the aisle when I could barely see over the top of her groceries. I got somewhat frightened because she seemed to be heading straight for me. She screeched to a halt within a few feet of me, peered over her load, wagged her finger and said, I left your church! I left your church! So I said, well, if it's my church, I, I think that was a very wise decision. If it's my church, I, I think I'm going to leave too. And she said, don't you want to know why I left? I said, no, not particularly, but I think I'm going to find out. <laughs> and I was right. She said, you weren't meeting my needs. And I answered, I don't ever recollect seeing you before, let alone talking to you, let alone knowing your needs. Did you ever tell anyone specifically what your needs were? And she couldn't recall that she had 
So I raised another question. Can you tell me, if we have 5,000 people sitting in that church, all with your attitude, how anyone's needs are going to be met? If you reserve the right to have that attitude, then you must give everybody the freedom to have that attitude. And if everybody has the attitude, who on earth is going to do all the need meeting? Standing her ground, she demanded, then you tell me who? Who will? Relieved, he said, I thought you'd never ask. And this is what will work. When people stop sitting in the pew saying they're not meeting my needs and start saying, whose needs can I meet? Then needs will be met. And when a servant spirit flourishes in a congregation, they minister to each other as unto the Lord. Isn't that the problem the, the, the apostles were having? They kept arguing who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Who's going to meet my needs? Because I want to be the greatest. And that night, Jesus is betrayed. Jesus is going to institute the Lord's Supper. He takes the towel and he girds his robe and he takes the basin and he starts washing their dirty, stinking feet. I wonder how many, I, I've always laughed at that part because I wonder how many got their feet washed before he got to Peter. <laughs> I sometimes think he started uh, on the other side of the table from where Peter was and Peter might have been last. And they all had their feet washed and nobody saying a word. And I can almost picture the thing, you know, he starts out and he's washing their feet. They're not even paying any attention. And again, does the first few, and then before it starts getting a little quiet, like they're thinking, what's he doing? He goes around the table, he gets to Peter, and Peter right away, you know, Peter, he's going to speak up. You're not going to wash my feet. But Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. Oh, then wash everything else. Wash my head, wash my hands. And Jesus said, if you want to be great, in the kingdom of God, then you serve others. You meet their needs. And guess what? Your needs will be met. Because as the scripture teaches us, we reap what we sow. If we sow kindness... And we show the fact that we're meeting other people's needs. We will reap that back. Because our needs will be met. It'll change our attitude. See, those who remain locked in a self-focused faith end up being complainers. Now, they may do many things for the church and for Christ. But if they're complainers, they reveal that they haven't understood what it is to live for Christ. Now, what do I mean by that? Here's an illustration. A preacher had this email conversation with a young soldier. The U.S. military had just invaded Afghanistan and his unit was going to be part of the next group to go in and this young man was clearly upset. And he said, this isn't what I signed up to do. I signed up for the military because I wanted to go to college and they promised to pay for my college bill. And the preacher wrote back to him and said, I understand. War is a terrible thing and no one knows what will happen to this conflict. You may not come back from Afghanistan, or you may not come back in one piece. But you've got to understand, the military doesn't exist to give you a college education. That's a perk. They've given you to reward you for serving your country. 
But the military doesn't exist to meet your needs. The military exists to keep the peace. And when that peace is threatened, their job is to kill people and break things. That's what they do. That's their goal. And that's your job description. Now, do you suppose that young man got through basic training? Do you think he lived in a barracks? Marched in parades? Stood guard duty? Went through war games? Yeah, he probably did all of that. He may have been an exemplary soldier from day one, but when it came to the ultimate reason that the military employed him going to war, he revealed that his personal agenda was all about who? Him. He wasn't in the military because he wanted to be a soldier. He was in the military because of what they could do for him, and when the going got rough, he wanted out. Now, here in 1 Corinthians 9, Paul's explaining what our ultimate goal should be. Our ultimate goal, he says in verse 19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. To the Jews he became a Jew. To the Gentiles he became a Gentile. To the weak he became a weak. Or he became weak, excuse me. And he wrote in verse 23, Now this I do for the gospel's sake, that I may be partaker of it with you, that I may share in its blessing. Paul was pursuing a goal. He was seeking a prize. He ran after a reward. This reward, this prize, to please the Savior who had changed his life. Paul said, I belong to no one. I'm a free man. I don't owe these people anything, but I do owe Jesus. Jesus has saved me, changed me, given my life hope and purpose. And so now I'm going to do everything I can to please him. And I know it will please Jesus if I win others for him. And so to please him, I'm going to make myself a slave or a servant to everyone to find ways of bringing them to him. This was Paul's prize. This was his finish line. It was his goal, his objective. And that should be ours as well. To win as many people as we can for Jesus Christ. Galatians 6.9, Paul wrote, And let us not grow weary while doing good for in due season... We shall reap if we do not lose heart. In other words, if we don't quit. So how does Paul think we can best win people to Christ? I want to share with you three ultimate goals to obtain the prize. And the first one is this. Let nothing disqualify our witness. Let nothing disqualify a witness. He said, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Disqualified for what? The race for the prize. A preacher named Greg told the time when he and his brother were young boys. They went to the barber shop by themselves one day to get haircuts, and as they entered the shop, it was so crowded. They had to take the only seats left. Chair positioned by the front door. And not much later, the front door swung open and in came a man cursing a blue streak. The man couldn't see them because as the door was open, they were positioned behind it and the room was filled with tobacco smoke. 
The new patron made his way over to an open seat on the other side of the room and began to regale those beside him with dirty jokes laced with curse words and the use of the Lord's name in vain. Greg and his brother were appalled. This was a man from their church. He wasn't an elder or Sunday school teacher, but he was regarded as a stalwart of the church. In fact, just that last Sunday, this man had gotten up on stage and sang a song glorifying God. He had a beautiful voice, said Greg, but a corrupt mouth. And then the man saw them. And blushing with shame, he apologized for his behavior. But it was almost too late to undo all the damage he'd done to his reputation with them. These two young boys, he had fallen considerably. He had disqualified himself in their eyes and his witness would never be the same. See, too often Christians excuse their bad behavior by saying, well, that's just the way I am. I'm only human. And they presume that everybody will overlook it. Imagine if Jesus would have said, well, you know, I'm only human. Or, that's just the way I am. They'll curse, they'll tell dirty jokes, they'll ogle women on the street, they'll insult their family, their preacher, their church, and or, or behave in some other sinful or mean-spirited way. And even if someone calls them on it, they'll just shrug it off, it's unimportant. But, you see, it isn't unimportant. Such behavior will disqualify us for the prize of reaching people for Christ. It will undermine our objective and people will reject our message because we didn't make our bodies our slaves. I had become a deacon at the church in Maryland only about a year. And I was working for the federal government as a civilian. And this one older gentleman was a really nice guy I worked with. He was a big Washington Redskins fan. Needless to say, I have been a staunch Pittsburgh Steelers fan since I was 11 years old. And I just did not like the Dallas Cowboys. But living there in the D.C. area, you came to I would rather root for the Dallas Cowboys than the Washington Redskins. <laughs> So one Sunday, towards the end of the season, Washington Redskins were going to play the St. Louis Cardinals, who did not have a very good team. And this guy says, you want to make a bet? I said, no, I don't bet. He goes, we'll just bet a soda. That's it. That Washington will beat St. Louis. At this time, they were St. Louis, Arizona down. But I said, I don't bet. He said, it's just a soda. I said... All right, just for a soda. The words didn't even come out of my mouth completely when he says, I'm going to tell your Sunday school class that you're betting. Thank you, Satan. Sitting right there across from me at the desk. Now I will say this. Thankfully, it didn't hurt. It didn't hurt me being disqualified. It did hurt my witness because few months later he found out his wife had cancer and he came to me and asked me vehemently to pray for his wife that she would have her cancer taken away. So he still recognized that I serve the Lord. But it could have happened that that could have shot everything. And I did buy him a soda by the way. Okay. <laughs> 
<laughs> you see, a lot of things can go wrong. So we must realize that to obtain our goal, we must make sure that nothing disqualifies our witness. Number two, think about the people around us. We need to think about the people around us, the people who don't go to church. What motivates them? What interests them? That's what Paul was saying. Are they Jews? Are they Gentiles? Are they weakened by hardship or sin? Paul's telling us that when he met someone who didn't know Jesus, he asked himself, what motivates them? What is there about their lives that I can use to reach them for Christ? That's why I've told you many times, you know, you are the best person to witness to someone. Because all you have to do is tell them your testimony. Tell them how Jesus changed you, especially when you have something in common. When you have something in common. Now, I don't know what all I have in common with you folks. But I just met Ken and Brenda today and I asked them one simple question. Where are you from? And they said, out near Poxitani in Pennsylvania. Well, guess what? We automatically have something in common. I grew up just south of York, Pennsylvania. So we're Pennsylvanians. <laughs> I know that that thing was the honoring of Pennsylvanians in my <laughs> but what I'm pointing out here is we have something coming right off so it gives us common ground see and I'm from Maryland <laughs> next door neighbor and I spent a lot of time in Maryland so when I met Mary it gave us a lot to talk about 23 years I lived there you're the best person to share your testimony and all that knowledge you have that you can Get them to understand how Jesus has changed your life. A man named Howard Hendricks tells about how he got interested in Jesus. He said, when I was nine years old, I was a little terror. I was out playing marbles one day when a man named Walt came along and invited me to Sunday school. There was nothing appealing to me about anything with school in it, so he made me another proposition. Would I like one I liked a lot better? He said, want to play a game of marbles with me? And after he'd wiped me out of a couple of games of marbles, he inquired, want to learn how to play this game better? <laughs> By the time he taught me how to play marbles over the next few days, he built such a relationship with me that I've gone anywhere he suggested. You know what that meant? I ended up in his Sunday school class with a dozen other boys, most of whom he'd magnetized in very much the same way. Of the 13 boys in that class, nine were from broken homes, five from Roman Catholics, 11 of those boys ended up in vocational Christian work. And I'd say that's serving the Lord, making a difference in lives. I recall my first real teachings on Jesus. A man named Ron Shu was my junior church teacher. When I was in sixth grade, he talked to me about Jesus and I became excited about learning. I learned of a revival at a church about an hour away. And he said he was going and asked if I wanted to go along. I went three straight nights. I came home the last night was sharing the word with my family and my dad looked right at, at me and said, look at that boy. One day he'll be a preacher. Now who would have ever guessed that about 15 years later I'd meet a man by the name of Gary Chirago who began to work with me, Brian and Hamilton and John Shank and all three of us men 
became preachers. Now my dad wasn't a prophet. He wasn't the son of a prophet. But to say that thing, and it stuck in my head. And like I've told you many times, if you didn't know me before I became a Christian, you'd never have seen me become a preacher. Not because I really thought that I was a really bad kid. It's just I was one of the most quietest people you ever met. Serious introvert. But God had a bigger plan. And once I became a Christian, he just kind of pulled that introvert thing right out of me. See, first we make sure that nothing disqualifies our witness. And second, we must reach people where they are. And number three, we need to take the gospel to people. Think in terms of going to them, not waiting for them to come to us. Someone has estimated only 3% of the non-Christian world will enter a church building. So if we're going to be effective for Christ, we have to go to them. All authority, Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, action word, therefore, make action word, disciples of all the nations, baptizing, action word, them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching, another action word, them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, in Paul's day, he didn't even have a church building to invite people to. So he had to find creative ways to introduce his Jesus to others. One man tells about the way he introduced people to Jesus. He found out when their birthdays were, and he would send them birthday cards with personal messages. And in those birthday cards, he always told them he wished that they might have the greatest gift of all, the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. If each of us strives to win one person to Jesus in one year, we could go from 40 to 80 people and not have enough seats in this auditorium. Should we think that big? Absolutely. The scripture says that on the day of Pentecost, then those who gladly received Peter's words were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Then the apostles continued to preach and teach the gospel in a manner of days. And in Acts 4, 4 it says, Many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And by Acts 5, 14 it says, And believers were increasingly added to the church, multitudes of both men and women. Man, it went from 3,000 to 5,000 men, and then multitudes of men and women. In a matter of three chapters which was probably only a few months. Now, how was that possible? I'll tell you how. They were running in such a way to win the prize. You know, we need to put on our running shoes and remember the ultimate goal. Let nothing disqualify our witness. Think about the people around us and take the gospel to the people. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize, run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do not obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. 
Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to the others, I myself should become disqualified. May it never be. But may we be running the race in such a way. In such a way that we see the finish line. And we're running in such a way that every step is closer to that finish line. And we realize that finish line is getting the step into heaven. When will we stop? How many runners have won a race because they stopped just short of that tape? But how many stop when they're leaning across when they have yet break the tape? Are they the winners? No. You're not a winner until you break the tape and cross the finish line. And the servants of God, if we want to get to heaven, we want to hear Jesus say, Enter in my faithful servant. That's only going to happen is if we make the effort to run the race this life has for us till we cross the finish line. Some years ago, NASCAR racer Mark Martin was driving a race at Bristol, Tennessee. He was leading the race, and right before the race was over, there was an accident, and they threw the yellow flag. And this was before they had, quote-unquote, overtime in racing. And Mark Martin, with the yellow flag flying and only three laps to go, meant Mark Martin was going to win the race. Because only a half-mile track, and he did that first half-mile. And he did that second half-mile. One more lap to go. And Mark Martin, the experienced driver he was for so many years, made that left turn a little too far. Then he went down pit road because he thought the race was over. And he went down pit road and everybody was shocked. Where's he going? He thought he had won the race. He thought the lap before was the and afterwards they said, Mark, what were you doing? What did you think? He said, I saw the white flag and thought it was all over. And I thought, he said, I lost concentration. And he didn't win the race. I wonder what we'd say to God if we got all the way to the finish line and decided to quit. Or we decide to quit and the very next day Jesus returns and he says, why did you quit one day too early? That's what I read about today. Don't quit. Run in such a way that you win the prize. You know, if you haven't given your life to Jesus yet, you're definitely not on the racetrack. You're not running the right race. There's only one way, and that's following Jesus. That's the plan of salvation. 
Right from the scripture. You're accepting God's grace by faith. Faith leads you to have faith in your repentance. That means turning away from your sinful life to want to follow God, follow Jesus Christ. Your faith leads you to confess the name of Jesus like it says in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Confessing the name of Jesus unto salvation. Faith leads us to be baptized by immersion. Immersed in the watery grave. That's what the Greek word means. Where our sins are washed away. We're filled with the gift of the Holy Spirit according to Acts 2.38. And then we walk that last line. Move forward in a new life of faithfulness. Toward that prize.